we're making our way through Genesis 46. There's about three major uh, sections here uh, that we'll get into. Um, and we've already got into one of them, the Theophany at Beersheba. That's the first section. And then this kind of second section is a ge uh, genealogy. That's what we're going to be going through today. And then the last part of the chapter is the actual reunion with uh, Joseph. In the previous chapter, we read about this theophany at Bethany that Jacob is sacrificing at Beersheba. It's this sacred place that God met with his fathers and his grandfathers. God reestablishes his covenant with Jacob, and uh, then he elucidates upon it. And the elucidation, does anybody remember? God reestablishes, then, and he does this. This is progressive revelation. How does God reveal more of the covenant to uh, Jacob at Beersheba? There's, I'm, gonna, I'm going to multiply you. I'm going to be with you. But then he adds something. Does anybody remember what it is? You'll become a great nation in Egypt. That wasn't known before. Oh, okay. This seems like a weird change of events. You're promising us, promising us Canaan, but we're going to become a great nation in Egypt. So again, it's kind of, uh, it's God doing things in ways that we wouldn't uh, expect. Uh, and then God gives him permission, remember, to continue into Egypt. He may have been thinking, well, uh, my father wasn't permitted to go down into Egypt. Maybe uh, I too am not permitted to go down into Egypt, but God says, you may go in so many words. Okay, so we get to this genealogy, and we have lots of genealogies in the Bible, and people make jokes about them, about how boring they are and things like this, but as we all know, there's nothing boring in the Bible, right? There's nothing boring in the Bible, and uh, genealogies are part of that. Um, so I ask, why is this genealogy here? Or ask more broadly, why are there genealogies in the Bible at all? What is God saying through, to us through these? That's true. That's, that was the last point I was going to draw up. It's a great point. We all go back. He said, he said we're all connected. Yeah. So we all go back to Adam. We see that. We can trace it all the way back to Adam. That may not have been your point, but that's the point I'm going to make. Uh, in, in, we, can, we can trace our genealogies back to one man. So we all come, humanity all comes from one man. Um, uh, so yeah, that's, that's, uh, that's a good point. How, how else in that, in that we all go back to one man, how else might that help us? This is not a principal point, but let's say apologetics in the, in the world that we live in. Let's say in a world where we're told that uh, that that uh, the world is billions of years old, how how might genealogies supports the creation. it supports the creation narrative? What kind of a creation narrative? Say that again. Yeah, right. Yeah, six. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Six thousand years old. It's a young Earth creation narrative. Uh, genealogies, we can trace it all the way back from Jesus, all the way back to Adam uh, to about 6,000 years, about 4,000 years from Jesus to Adam. And we can trace it all the way back through David to Abraham, all the way back to Adam. Good. Okay. So it serves these apologetic functions. It shows a certain unity that we're at least all in the old Adam, which presents problems uh, in the sense that uh, we need to be in a new Adam. 
because the old atom dies. But uh, okay, these are all good. How? Uh, what else? What is one of the what is one of the promises that God says? What's the proto evangelion? I've I've mentioned this many times. What is the proto evangelion? What is that? It's the first gospel. What's the first gospel we read in Genesis? What is it? Before that, that is, a, that is a gospel. The gospel is preached to Abraham. Paul says this in Galatians. There's one previous to this in the garden after the fall. Very good. Yeah. The, the seed of the woman will uh, crush the seed of the serpent, his head. He will bruise your heel and then you will uh, uh, bruise his head. So this word seed, this is often translated as offspring or descendants. Um, In Galatians, Paul says that the seed of Abraham is Jesus. He is the seed. So you have sons of Jesus, you have sons of God, and you have sons of the devil. That's why Jesus calls the Pharisees a brood of vipers. You're a nursery, you're children of Satan, you're the children of the serpent. So these genealogies show us these things at work. What's the very first genealogy that we see beyond that? Well, the very first genealogy we see is in Genesis 2, where it says the genealogy of heaven and earth, and then it shows God creating Adam. Uh, It's the same word, toledeth. It's this coming together of heaven and earth. God breathes life into the dirt, creates Adam. So humanity is the first one. But then after that, we see... From Adam comes a line of Seth and a line of Cain. And these are seeds of the woman, seeds of the serpent. And then we see that even with Jake, all the way down here to Jacob. Jacob is a seed of the woman. Who was who the seed of the serpent that we might, or that we might class in that category, even though he repented? Another similar, another similar genealogy to, to Jacob. His brother, Esau. We have, we have a genealogy of Esau, and it's similar too. Esau, we're, we're given his genealogy, and then Esau moves from where to where? From Canaan to Seir, right, right east of, of Israel, of Canaan. It's a similar thing, and he settles there, and he becomes a nation. He becomes a kingdom, and we, we've talked about this, how the, the seed of the serpent kind of gets these things first, and then God's people gets these things later. They become a nation later. They become a kingdom later. Yeah, in the genealogies of, of generally the seed of the woman line, we see that there are sinners that God has saved. There are people who aren't even Israelites that God brings in. Um, so it, it, there, there's Ruth, the Moabitess, and, and there's, there's people like this of bad repute who have repented and been brought in. Very good. Okay. Um, so I think that that answers why genealogies are there in the broadest sense. It's God keeping his promise. He says, I am going to send a seed that's going to defeat the serpent. And so these genealogies are tracing it. And then the seed finally comes in Jesus. That's why genealogies are in the Bible, because God keeps his word. And then I think probably the last thing that I'd like to say about genealogies is um, they're in the Bible to show that humanity in general is being obedient to God's commands at the creation which was what? Be fruitful and multiply. So we start to see them doing this, being fruitful and multiplying, spreading out throughout the earth. 
and we see these genealogies uh, uh, all throughout Genesis um, in accordance with the word of God doing these things. Very good. Okay. Now, uh, we're told that all the persons of the house of Jacob who went down to Egypt were 70. Uh, if you add these up, at the end of every, it's organized by the women. We have Leah, then we have her concubine, then we have Rachel and her concubine, Zilpah and Bilhah. And after every one, we're told Leah has 33, Zilpah 16, Rachel 14, and Bilhah 7. You add those up, you have 70. Now, 70 is all over the place in Scripture. But the main thing that I think God is telling us through this is drawing us back to the first time 70 appears in Genesis, which is when? Anybody know? It's, uh, it's another genealogy of sorts. It's after this. It's, it's after the creation of, of Earth. Uh, it's before that. It's called the Table of Nations. So after the flood happens, and right before the Tower of Babel, you have the genealogies of, of Noah's sons. And these are the, all the nations of the earth. And if you count those up, it's 70. So basically 70 has this all the nations of the world aspect uh, to it. And so there's 70 here. So I think this suggests to us that uh, Israel is becoming a nation. And in some ways, they are becoming a new humanity. There's a, the, just as after the flood, a new humanity is produced, there's a new humanity being produced with God's covenant people here. Now, there's another place that, appear, that 70 appears in Exodus after Genesis. Where is that? It's with the elders. The, the elders and, and the priests meet with God, and um, the elders are 70. So 70 elders, and, the, and we see that all going all the way to the New Testament. There's the Sanhedrin, I'm pretty sure, is, is 70. So 70 is representative, I think, of, uh, I think what the Bible's showing us, of nations, and then of God's people ruling over the nations. Why is there 70 elders? Because there's got to be an elder for every nation. I think, uh, I'm, I'm kind of putting it kind of humorously, but I think that these things are connected for us to make these, make these connections. All right. Um, Let's see. Uh, I want to bring up a few discrepancies here. If you read in Acts, Stephen the martyr, before he's martyred, what does he do? He preaches a sermon. He kind of reviews the history of, of Israel to the Jews, and then they kill him. One of the things that he does is he says that there were 75 people that went down uh, to Egypt with Jacob. Now, how many does it say that, that, is, that, are, that in, our, in our reading? Is that what it says? Seven. It's 70, right. Yeah. So there's a discrepancy here. Why is there this discrepancy? Because Stephen is quoting the Septuagint. Our translation comes from the Masoretic. Even in the Masoretic, there is some differences. Sometimes it says 70, sometimes it'll say 75. But the Septuagint, I, I believe, always says 75. So, and often when the New Testament writers quote the Old Testament, they're quoting the Septuagint. Septuagint is what, by the way? It's the Greek version of the Old Testament. So we are translating the Old Testament from Hebrew to English. But in Jesus's time, they, had, they spoke Greek and they quoted from a Greek Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint. Again, Septuagint means 70. There were 70 translators who uh, uh, translated it. 
Okay, and so um, the early fathers were aware of this. Jerome makes a note of this, these discrepancies. Then also, even in our own text, it says that there's 66 that, that were with Jacob, and then it says there's 70 in total. And even trying to account for that is it, there, there's a million different ways you can account for it. Some people will say, well, this is just including the wives of Jacob and Jacob himself in one counting and another counting. It's taking him out in one counting. It's including uh, Joseph's sons and his grandsons. And in another counting, it's not in one counting. It's it's excluding Dinah and Sarah and the women. And then in another, it's not. So there's a lot of different ways you can do it. I don't know which way is the right way. Uh, it's actually quite confusing, but I just offer that to you as, as uh, possible resolutions to those um, discrepancies. Oh yeah, that's another one. It seems like Benja Benjamin's sons are counted in here and he's likely not old enough to even have sons or uh, to have that many sons and uh, counting them. One, I think the author is intentionally wanting to bring the number to 70, which I'm okay with that. Um, but also counting those sons, uh, we see this in Hebrews, where, where might, I'll just say it, in Hebrews 7, it talks about, he makes a point about Melchizedek being greater than Levite. He's comparing priesthoods. The Melchizedekian priesthood is greater than the Levitical priesthood. And why is that? Do you know why? One of the arguments? Because Melchizedek blesses Levi when he's in the loins of his father, Abraham. Levi's not even born. He's in his loins. Melchizedek blesses him and he uses this as an argument for the greater because the greater always blesses the lesser. So he uses that as an argument. Um, and there could be always blesses the lesser. Yeah, that's that's the that's the argument in Hebrews that's being made. So so he, he makes the, the Melchizedekian priesthood of Christ is greater than the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament. All right. Um, let's see here. And just a few more thoughts here. OK, we already mentioned there, there's language here that's very similar to uh, the ark. So in some ways, this is kind of an anti-flood because what's happening? It's not a ton of water. What is it? It's a famine. The world is in some ways being destroyed. What's the ark? The ark is Egypt. They're coming into these, this ark, this Egypt, and, 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 and uh, humanity is being preserved, and this new hand, humanity is going to be uh, formed in, is in Israel. And so I think these motifs of the ark and the flood narrative are being recast here again in uh the Jacob narrative of going down uh, to Egypt. Okay, uh, two more things, two more things, and then we're done. Anybody notice anything about the number of children? That they're what? No, 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 just I was asking questions. You say he had 70 kids? Yeah, good, yeah, sons and grandsons. It's counting grandsons. Oh, okay, yeah. so he was blessed and was able to breed. He was blessed and able, able to breed. breed yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was fruitful. Exactly. Yeah, that is a blessing. Absolutely. Yeah, fruitfulness uh, in, in uh, having natural children is always a blessing in the Bible, for sure. Good. Um, now, the number of children is interesting because the wives have more children than the concubines. Now, we take these symbolically, and then we see 
that the first wife, Leah, has double the amount, more than double the amount of children than Rachel. But Rachel was the favored wife by Jacob. Now, what might God be saying through all of this? Who's the most fruitful woman here? She was the score. The what? The wife of his youth, his first wife. That's right. Very good. And she was the one who was despised. He didn't love her. And it took her a long time to realize that the Lord was her portion, that the Lord was her strength. And in the naming of her children, basically the naming of her children shows that she wants Jacob's love so bad and she doesn't really get it. And the, uh, uh, I forget which child it is. Maybe, maybe it's Judah. Um, she finally realizes that the Lord is, is the one who will love her. And that's where she finds satisfaction. The, yeah, the Lord is my praise or something like that. Yeah. And it's from Judah that Jesus comes. Yep. Right. Good. Very good. Very good. Okay. Last one. And this gets to Jeremy's point. Jacob was a fruitful man. But if you remember, his thigh was wounded, which I would say either it's, it's a euphemism basically for circumcision. Every time you see thigh or member in the Bible, it's getting, it's talking about the privates. It's talking about the generative capacity of a man to produce in this area. It's always, it always has reference to that. Even girding up your loins, right? Your, your, so all of that stuff, Jacob was wounded. And in some ways, uh, when I did the sermon on that, I basically compared it to circumcision. So God wounded him in this very sensitive area. And then he had a bunch of kids. He was fruitful. And this is what God does with us. He will wound us. He will wound us in some of the most difficult areas, private areas, sensitive areas. And then he will bless you through that. It's a way of God. It's it's the way that God works with his people. And so I think that this kind of shows us uh, Jacob walked away blessed from the Lord and wounded. And then he walks into Egypt with 70 sons and grandsons. God continues to bless him. All right, let's pray. The charge is this, be fruitful and multiply. Whether you are married or unmarried, wounded or healthy, the Lord has called you to be fruitful and to multiply. So go forth and do so. May God give you the dew of heaven, the fatness of the earth, an abundance of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.